0: Hello, my name is Larry Dobrow, and I'm the senior editor of MM&M Magazine. Today, I have the good fortune of having been tapped to host this podcast, which hits on one of the farmer world's most stubborn problems, which of course is adherence. More specifically, we're going to discuss adherence in the context of leveraging data to enhance a brand's ability to reach target patients. Um, I'm joined by two of the sharpest people at a company that has no shortage of sharp people, um Trial Cards VP Analytic Services Paul Levine and Trial Cards Senior Analytical Consultant Robert Lee. Thanks uh, so much for joining us today here guys.
1: Nice to be here. All
0: right. So yeah, let's uh let's jump right in. Um it's kind of a super super broad first question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um why why is adherence such a focus for so many pharmaceutical manufacturers?
1: Well, I'll take that, Larry. Um, I think adherence is is one of those issues that has been talked about for thirty or forty years um, without many great efforts to try to solve it. And so consequently, I think what you're seeing is the intensified effort of pharmaceutical manufacturers and others in this broader healthcare industry trying to do something about adherence because in some sense, it's kind of the clearest most evident low-hanging fruit you could have it's about people who are already prescribed medications that are helping them presumably who then drop off and the question is why does that happen and what can we do to try to um change that it's funny because in a presentation i had given a couple of months ago i had looked at the comparison between some of the adherents uh, results from 25 years ago versus today. And I was appalled, really, that we have made so little progress. Um, 25 years ago, we were talking about the fact that $100 billion in direct and indirect costs were being lost because of poor adherence. Now we talk about $300 billion in direct and indirect adherence. We have not cracked this code. And yet, what is very ironic about this whole area is that individually different tactics for adherence work. The big problem is it always seems to be tremendously difficult to get enough people into any kind of adherence program to move the needle in a profound way.
0: Why, why do you think that is? Uh, what about getting, you know, getting people involved, getting them engaged, getting them enthused? Uh, why, why is that so hard?
1: yeah that's that I think that sort of comes down to the nature of human beings um, because at some very basic level we 're dealing with human behavior, and human behavior has been very, very hard to predict over the years. People like Robert you know my my esteemed colleague has done tremendous work trying to understand from the data that you get, whether it be in a claim record or some other kind of fashion, about trying best to predict behaviors of patients but it 's a tremendously difficult um area. And I think that one of the um, concerns that have have, um, really haunted people trying to work on adherence is the definition of why people are not adherent. Because I think a lot of people, especially in the pharmaceutical industry, and I don't mean to pick on you know our industry by any means, but we tend to look at the issues with respect to adherence based on things like forgetting. So what do we try to do? We try to remind them. And that makes good sense. If the problem with lack of adherence is remembering to take your medication, similarly, you know, a company like TrialCard, where we've got a copay program, often looks at cost as being a major issue. But you know, the the fact of the matter is that um, probably those reasons account for forty percent of the reasons why people don't take their meds. So if you're trying to essentially fix this problem that you're defining as a reminder issue or a cost issue with a reminder call and a copay card, you're gonna miss a whole lot of people. So the question has to be, what is the challenge that that patient faces? And then you're back into that realm of human behavior. And that's so difficult to try to, um, to tease out.
0: Yeah, it's not really a flip the switch and make it better situation. It's something which has to be addressed over time, um with a different degree of intensity. Exactly. Yeah. Um, Paul, you already touched on this a little bit, but I'll throw it at you anyway. Um the this problem, has it intensified in, you know, the last eighteen to twenty four months to give a completely arbitrary uh timeframe? Um what what are some of the recent changes that you've seen?
1: I do think it's intensified. I think the focus has intensified. We used to joke uh, a little bit overly glibly. I apologize in advance, but you know, um, <laughs> the pharmaceutical industry would get very, very excited about adherence when their pipeline started to get thin. Um, and you know, therefore you're basically saying, I don't have new good products coming down the pike. So I have to make sure that I can maximize everything that's possible in the people who are currently using my products. I don't think that's necessarily the issue anymore. Um, Right now, I think what we're seeing is a lot more of very, very high cost products for which adherence and lack of adherence becomes a significant issue. I mean, just think of uh, of the classic example of the hep C products where you truly cannot miss a, a dose. And when you're in that kind of zone, it's a very, very different kind of equation. Not only here in the, the case of hep C are we talking about a dollars um, that are very significant that, they could, that would be foregone, but you're also looking at the efficacy of a product. And so the consequences of poor adherence, I think, have really, really increased over time. Uh, It used to be that we would look at, you know, the classic areas like, you know, um, antidepressants and cholesterol medications and things like that, where there were lots and lots of people who were taking relatively reasonably priced products. Um, and the whole notion is you just really want to maximize as much as as you can out of that group. But this is a very, very different game. You know, if you're talking about a product that's over $1,000 a month or $50,000 a year or something like this, the cost of one lost script is incredibly important.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, Robert, I think this is a question for you. Um, tell me a little bit about what Frilecard is doing to address some of these uh, concerns that Paul just talked about. Um, Tell me about the model. How how is the model different from some of the ones that preceded it?
2: Yeah, sure thing. Um, Basically, in my position, I'm lucky to be able to see transactional level data. So just the way we do business is we see every single pharmacy transaction that takes place for the patients using our cards. And this is analogous in many ways to the kind of data that credit reporting agencies see as well. And those that kind of data is used to create very predictive credit models. And in our world, we're doing something very similar using this transactional level data to come up with adherence scoring models. And so this is materially different than what is currently taking place in which, We just use kind of backward-looking triggers. Oh, we would have expected to have seen you, you know, tomorrow or last Saturday, and we didn't. Let's send them a reminder, as Paul was saying, you must have forgotten to take your medication. What we're doing now is looking forward in time and saying who is likely to be forgetting or who is likely to miss their medication for whatever reason and kind of put them into a different triage for a special treatment.
0: That you know that makes all the sense in the world <laughs> uh, why why has the industry been sort of i mean obviously trial cards always been pushing in this you know, this direction, but why has the industry kind of been so eager to look back rather than to look forward?
2: it's very easy to look backwards mm. in my opinion it's it's yeah. much more difficult to look forward and and convince people that being able to predict this kind of behavior is possible, but I think Paul would have a take on that as well.
1: Yeah, I mean I I think I think Robert's right. You know, first of all, you essentially have perfect information when you're looking backwards because you know actually what happened. The challenge comes in when you're trying to understand what will happen moving forward. And that is an area in which we have way less than perfect information. So I think at, at, at some very core level, the notion was always to say, let's look where we feel most confident that we understood what went on. So where I think Robert is taking us with the types of analyses that we're doing now is by being able to understand where the concerns are for these different patients based on the data that are coming through. We can then figure out which of our solutions really make sense to use for an individual patient. And I'll give you an example. You know, everybody tries to, you know, to do those things like reminders that we've talked about before. And we do too. We do those prescription reminders, we do daily medication reminders. But what we're also doing is trying to create systems that will allow a patient to immediately refill their um, claim, uh, their prescription. So a patient can send an email or uh, respond to a text that will then forward a request to that patient's pharmacy in order to get that refill um, completed. We've also got approaches that are focused, where necessary, uh, on nurse outreach. So it may be important for a nurse to reach out to a patient and, and think again in these very high cost areas where understanding the ramifications of not being adherent is incredibly important. So a nurse in that circumstance may use techniques such as motivational interviewing in order to make sure that a patient can understand how they should be adherent and why they should be adherent and to encourage them to do so. Um, Other areas such as patient education and disease management, these are clear areas that I think are always overlooked because of the simplicity of thinking about the fact that you send out a reminder. Um, One of the things that made a very, very big impression upon me early in my career was when we were working on a uh, um, an epilepsy product. And when we were talking to the uh, KOLs and the ad board for the manufacturer who was uh, putting forth this uh, epilepsy product, one of the key reasons for a poor uh, adherence for a patient with epilepsy was that patient's reluctance to admit that he or she has epilepsy. Hmm. So if that's your issue and that you don't wanna recognize that this is a real serious concern for you and having a big impact on your life, Does it make sense necessarily just to send them a reminder to say that you should do this? Or does it make sense to understand where that patient is at and move them along the pathway to better understanding so that then they can really make a a more educated and knowledgeable decision? These are the kinds of differences that I think we're now seeing in this realm of adherence.
0: Oh, terrific, actually leads right into our next question. Let's talk about uh, ROI of such campaigns. Um, what, what is the ROI
1: of a typical predictive adherence campaign? Ah, always always a good question. <laughs> <ROI> <laughs> always one is that people want target. the answer to, right? <laughs> and They do, they do. And, and but here I would also say that you've got a lot of moving parts here. So, I mean, I'm I'm a very practical guy. So I always think about the first step being, well, what is the price of that medication? What is the value of that script? Um, and potentially, what is the annuity value of that script? If you get a patient on, what is the expectation for the number of you know, additional refills that you will get? That will give you some sort of sense, if you think about that as kind of the numerator of a fraction, about where you can spend and where you can focus in order to make a wise decision. So, for example, for a $50,000 product, you've got a lot of room to make choices about what types of adherence solutions you want to create. It may behoove you in those circumstances to use nurse outreach because, gosh, you know, for $50,000, as long as your your call doesn't cost $50,000, you're going to have a positive ROI. On the other hand, for a product that is relatively low priced, it may be most effective for you to do the smartest possible email campaign. So I think what the the goal that I always look at is that you know an adherence program should always in 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 my book and you know this is this is the Paul Levine version of the world I always look for something that is at least four to one um, as far as the efficacy of of an adherence type of program but that being said you have to take into account all the different factors involved in this, whether the price of the product, the price of the intervention, the nature of the lack of adherence of those patients. There's a lot of, a lot of pieces that uh, get moved around there.
0: Um, we've talked a little bit so far about um, patients and specifically you know, obviously getting out to them. Um, Robert, I think this is probably for you then. Um, in terms of patient outreach, what are the most important touch points um, that you're seeing? Um, have these shifted um, for some of these new campaigns What are some of the variables that feed into the model?
2: Yeah, I'll take uh, those kind of piecemeal. So the most important touch points for us are whichever way the patient wants to be engaged. That by far gives us the highest probability of uh, successfully mitigating what could be a potential abandonment issue. And so we've been inundated with ways to be contacted in the recent years. So that's really what's changed is how do these people want to be contacted? Is it via email? Is it Twitter? Is it Facebook? Is it any nature, any number of avenues that people have signed up to receive communications in the world? And engaging them on those platforms pretty much gives you the best probability of success. And as far as what variables feed into these predictive models that we're building, um, you know, the saying all real estate is local, well, all healthcare is local as well. So we have Uh, Basically, what goes into this is a lot of demographic data, such as education attainment, unemployment rates, housing values. But on top of that, um, we join in county health statistics, census data. All this combined with our already robust data set um, that we have internal to trial card based on their longitudinal history is what derives these scores. Did the patient lose coverage? Was there, is there coverage changes for the the drug that they're taking, all these add up and give us an idea of what kind of flight risk these patients represent.
0: All right. Just one last question for you guys. Um, it's the old, uh, the old crystal ball question. Um, what, what's next for some of the things that we've spoken about today? And um, what does trial card see as sort of the next frontier here for whether it's campaigns or products or services that are attempting to chip away at adherence or excess issues?
1: Uh, it's a great question. We we'll always love the the crystal ball question. Um, <laughs> for for me, I I think, and as you can probably tell from um, from the opinions that I've expressed so far, is that I I think we're on the cusp of matching the data and the leverage that we can get from the data. Uh, of the types that Robert has talked about, with the kind of services that have been created, I would say historically we 've looked at these efforts as as kind of separate ones. The data um, side would include people like me and people like Robert off trying to figure out what really predicted that patient 's behavior, but we didn 't have great solutions that were really leveraging the learnings quite as well as I think we have now. So as I think about it, it's bringing together services that are incredibly relevant to the kinds of findings that you have in the data that you can gather about patients. So I think it's this knowledge world that we're talking about that I think is is kind of the core of this question. I think there's also a very practical question in terms of the channel. Um, i it 's no surprise that nearly everybody in the United States seems to have a smartphone now and Absolutely. and consequently, I think we need to think about the tools that we as an industry use to help patients take their medications more effectively and more consistently and have to think about that smartphone tool as being the centerpiece of where that patient uh chooses to interact with us and chooses how to understand his or her situation. So the greater knowledge about how these tools can be used in the real world, I think, is incredibly important. Um, the, and kind of associated with this smartphone, I think, is the other kind of wild new frontier, and I think that's on the wearable side. Um, wearables, I think, have a tremendous um, prospect and they've got a, 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 I I would say right now, if if anybody's sort of familiar with the, the Gartner hype cycles, we're kind of at that high point in the hype cycle there before everybody's going to go into the trough of discouragement. And and then we're gonna reach back up to this plateau where people have a reasonable expectation for where wearables can come into play. But as wearables get smarter and smarter and they know what a person who is using them, how their behavior is really changing over time, we'll be able to develop interactions, again, probably using that smartphone associated with that wearable to give Um, instructions to a patient, if it's about uh, a reminder issue or to give education, if it's about an education concern or an awareness concern. So those are, I would say, the the three general areas that I would look at, the the combining of data and services, uh, the increasing focus on the smartphone and also on wearables.
0: You know, I I think you both said this in the context of something else, but there are certainly a lot of moving parts here. This is not just a (laughs) <laughs> this is not a problem that can be addressed in a vacuum.
1: Absolutely. All
0: right. Paul, Robert, I can't thank you guys enough for uh, being here with us today. It was um, an amazing education for me. Um, for MM&M Magazine, I'm Larry Dobrow and many thanks for listening.